Sarah Vow was curious how the Hawaiian Islands became American territory. In her book, Unfamiliar Fishes, she investigates why not everybody at the time of annexation thought it was such a great idea. We annexed them much to their dismay, to the native dismay. David Woolman tells us how a trio of cowboys from the Big Island redefined America's western frontier. As Wild West fever was sweeping the globe, Hawaii was by no means left out. Journalist Michael Scott Moore loves to surf. He tells us about the pioneers of surfing who turned the sport into an American pop culture export to some unexpected places around the world. Instead of turning Cubans into anti-imperialists, the surfers in Cuba, since surfers are rebels no matter what system they live in, uh, became anti-communist. We're hanging 10 for a special Hawaiian hour on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com. We're looking at some of the interesting ways Hawaii has influenced the rest of the United States on today's Travel with Rick Steves. A trio of Hawaiian cowboys make a splash at a big rodeo in Wyoming. And we'll hear how the free spirit of surfing spread from Waikiki to the rest of the world. But the story of how Hawaii was annexed is another matter. Just after the 4th of July in 1898, Hawaii was made an American territory. Author Sarah Val investigates how it happened in her book, Unfamiliar Fishes. Sarah, welcome. Thank you. So when we think about Hawaii, pretty clear in your book, 1898 is a huge date. Why is that? It's really just the summer of 1898. We've kind of become an empire almost overnight. And, and that uh, was the summer of the Spanish-American War when we annexed Cuba and Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines, and Hawaii gets kind of jumbled in there. All of those places are islands, and a lot of it was about establishing naval bases. And yeah, places, Guantanamo and Pearl Harbor in the Guantanamo same Guantanamo Bay. That was when I think the United States became the country it is now, as opposed to the one at its founding. Not that those guys weren't imperialistic, too, but... <laughs> but that really was imperial America at its, in a way, in its zenith in 1898, when we looked yeah. at the world. And a little subtitle of your book almost is, When Manifest Destiny Got a Sunburn. <laughs> get us up to speed on that. Explain Manifest Destiny and how to get a sunburn. Well, the idea of Manifest Destiny is the idea that, like, the white people have almost this directive from their god to populate the continent of North America. So Manifest Destiny, the original white Christian Americans, mm -hmm. it's ordained almost by God that that should be ours. That was their thought, yeah. There were some people living in the middle uh, bits that kind of had a bone to pick with this idea. But even before that, before the Oregon Trail and all of that, fairly early in our history, really, in um, 1820, the first New England missionaries set off from Boston Harbor to Christianize the, the savages. The sandwichers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so those people kind of made um, the Hawaiian Islands as Bostonian as possible. They wanted it to be 
Christian and Protestant, and they set up these missions. I mean, the other thing that was happening at that exact moment was this other group of New Englanders, the whalers, who also started showing up in the Sandwich Islands for R&R. So you have basically the Saturday night and Sunday morning of New England just kind of storming the beaches of the Hawaiian Islands at the exact same time. 1820. Mm-hmm, 1820. Hawaii. Welcome yeah. to America. Yeah, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so, yeah, the the whalers, they want to meet some girls. They want to have some liquor. And the, you know, the uh, puritanical missionaries. So party poopers from the whalers' point of view. Yeah, definitely. And the missionaries, it's these missionaries, the ones who stuck around, it's their children and grandchildren who go on to overthrow the Hawaiian queen and start the sugar plantations and completely change the islands. But before we get to that, I mean, these missionaries, because their descendants kind of, from the native point of view, wrecked Hawaii, get a bad rap. But one thing they did, because they're Protestant missionaries, that's all about reading the Bible. And so in order for the Hawaiians to read the Bible, these missionaries had to teach the Hawaiians how to read. The idea was these missionaries would teach uh, people about Christianity and to read in their own native languages, except there wasn't a written Hawaiian language. So these Hawaiian missionaries, the missionaries to Hawaii, I should say, from New England, they first created the Hawaiian written language. Then they translated the Bible into Hawaiian. Then they basically taught within one generation the entire population of the Hawaiian Islands to read. But was it fundamentally religious imperialism or was it political imperialism kind of disguised as that? Or was the religious group doing their religious work? The idea of being a missionary is imperialistic in that you're just spreading out around the world, showing up and telling the locals, guess what, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Here's the good news. At first, it was just religious. Later on, those missionaries' descendants it became political. So the political, the, the military strategic value of Hawaii wasn't seen at first, but it came in later. Right. And then we've got uh, illiterate populace. And yeah, it's possible that, you know, by the 1830s, the Hawaiian Islands were the most literate place on earth. Is that right? Possible. Best-selling author Sarah Vowell is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. She investigates the drama behind the Americanization of the Hawaiian Islands in her book Unfamiliar Fishes. Sarah also describes how, after a particularly nasty presidential election, Frances Marquis de Lafayette helped to heal a divided United States in her book Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. So, 1898, Hawaii becomes a colony. Did they join us, or did we annex them? We annexed them, much to their dismay, to the native dismay. And then move way ahead to when was it that Hawaii became a state? 1959. Was it pretty enthusiastic? Everybody wanted to get on board, or was there an element There's always that been a healthy segment of the Native Hawaiian population who has never considered the annexation, much less statehood, a legitimate act, and still to this day protest the annexation and statehood. To this day? Oh, yeah. The sovereignty movement. I, I hung out with a lot of these people. They were very instrumental for me in terms of doing my research because— huh. I learned so much from them. Like a lot of people who have a bone to pick with history, they're very well informed and they're ready to share their knowledge, you know. Where do you meet these people? I went to some of their meetings. They have meetings. Really? Um, They have protests. So there's a a recognition of their ancestral independent past. For sure. And and they keep that alive. And 
What's the British flag doing on the on the Hawaiian flag? There's a little tiny Union Jack in it, isn't there? There was a period where they, I mean, the Hawaiian royals at some point, you know, that was their first contact with Westerners was the British Royal Navy when James Cook, quote unquote, discovered uh, the Hawaiian Islands when he landed on Kauai. And there was a period when the Hawaiian monarchy was much more enamored with Great Britain. I think they weren't the United States. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And and also they were the monarchs. Like one of them was in touch with Queen Victoria and they okay. had that, like the monarchy in common. Uh, okay. So they had a little royal affinity going on there. I mean, another From- thing that one of the further developments that, you know, these missionaries, their children and grandchildren started these sugar plantations. And this completely changed everything about the island, these plantations, because It changed the ecology, obviously, but also the racial makeup of the islands because they were bringing in workers from Hmm. Korea, China, Japan, Norway, Portugal. And because all of these people were working the plantations, you know, they would share their food. So to me, like the great symbol of modern Hawaii is the plate lunch, where it's, you know, usually some kind of Asian or Polynesian protein, Kahlua pig or teriyaki chicken or mahi-mahi two scoops of Japanese rice, and macaroni salad, of course. And so <laughs> and so to me, like, Where'd the that macaroni idea, salad come from? From, you know, <laughs> the white people in the war and all that. But um, to me, it's almost like my ideal of America is the menu board at the Rainbow Drive-In in Waikiki because you can get a hot dog, you can get mahi-mahi, you can have a plate lunch, you can have <laughs> uh, Japanese-style chicken. You know, it's kind of my ideal of America almost because it became this sort of weird melting pot. Okay, so you can you can get the melting pot in the cuisine. What about just flat-out sightseeing? Are there artifacts from King Kamehameha time or whatever? Oh, um, yeah. I mean, there are great places to go. I mean, there's an excellent museum in Honolulu, the Bishop Museum, which has a lot of um, artifacts from the era of the Hawaiian Kingdom and thereafter. There's the old palace, the Iolani Palace, which is the only palace in the United States. And that predates 1898. Yeah, it was the home of the last king and queen who were brother and sister there are so many historic sites that are, are just stunning. Like there's this one valley in Maui, the Eo Valley? Yeah, I, I Yao. Can, yes. It's where King Kamehameha, who quote-unquote united the Hawaiian people by bringing all these disparate islands under his domain, it was this very fierce battle where it was called the damming of the waters because so many people from Maui were killed that dammed up the river there. But it's it's one of the most beautiful places in the Pacific, I think. So you have opportunities to gain a, an appreciation, to have an Im- be impacted by the heritage yeah, and history. Yeah, you can go to Kealakakua Bay, which is where poor old Captain Cook was killed. There's this wonderful place. Mark Twain went there on his trip to Hawaii called the Place of Refuge on the Big Island, which in the old days, you know, if someone was about to be... Uh, executed, if they ran to this one place, they were safe. And it's just this beautiful place on the water there that um, you can sit on the rock where Mark Twain sat. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sarah Val. We're talking about her book, Unfamiliar Fishes, that talks about Hawaii and the centuries-long dynamic between imperialists, between missionaries, between colonialism between uh, globalization and a fragile but enduring Hawaiian heritage. Sarah, if you are going with a traveler or a friend and you wanted to go to one spot that really, where you're 
feeling the richness of the Hawaiian heritage before it became, you know, a state in the United States? Where would you go and why? To me, always the most beautiful places on the islands are inland. You know, Mm. when the Hawaiians are giving uh, directions, they'll always say it's one of two directions. It's either Mauka or Makai, meaning toward the mountain or toward the sea. And if you go on Oahu, if you go uh, Mauka, there's this one valley where it's not even really marked. You have to really look this up. But it, it was the uh, the summer palace of Kamehameha Third, And it's sort of in the middle of this bamboo grove and it's in ruins. I guess sort of visually it's the Hawaii, you know, from the television show Lost where, you know, the sound of the bamboo hitting each other kind of like marimbas and and there's this, you know, remnants of this old summer palace where the old Hawaiian royals would go. It's that volcanic landscape and a little bit of the jungle, so it's a little bit dark and dark green. Sounds like my, my primeval Hawaiian dream come true. Exactly where is that? It's on Oahu. You have to look for it. It's in Nuuanu Valley. I don't know that Hawaiians will be particularly excited about me saying this. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's a but... kind of, I remember telling one Native Hawaiian gentleman, you know, how wonderful I thought this place was and why isn't there a plaque and a parking lot and everything? And, and so people could, you know, visit it. And he just said, oh, they'll just ruin it. Right. Well, they've got some history to, to give them that, that perception. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Sarah Val about her book, Unfamiliar Fishes, about the story of Hawaii. Sarah, thanks. Thank you, Rick. Sarah Val tells us about her first Hawaiian luau in an extra to this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Up next, we meet the Hawaiian cowboys who made the islands proud just a few years after annexation. And later, we hear how the pioneers of surfing taught the world to find freedom in a perfect wave. Aloha. It's Travel with Rick Steves. In 1793, when Captain George Vancouver presented King Kamehameha with six cows and a bull, he introduced cattle ranching to the Hawaiian Islands. That gift would actually become the mainstay of one of America's largest cattle ranches, the Parker Ranch on the Big Island. Fast forward now to 1908 and three unassuming Hawaiian cousins, wearing cowboy hats adorned with wild flowers, entered the world-famous rodeo in Cheyenne, Wyoming. They'd shake up the competition, change how we view the Wild West, and bring pride to their newly annexed island home. In his book, Aloha Rodeo, David Woolman tells us how these three Hawaiian cowboys lassoed their way to the top. And David joins us now to share the story. Aloha, David. Aloha. What an interesting thing. It never even occurred to me that there would be a a history of rodeos on the island of Hawaii or in, in the Hawaiian Islands. And the story is set way back in the days of Buffalo Bill and Annie Oakley, right? I mean... Rodeo was a big deal uh, 120 years ago in the West. Talk just about the the entertainment value of rodeo before we get into the the Hawaiian aspect. Sure. It was tremendous. You know, Buffalo Bill Cody at the time was, was arguably the most famous person on the planet. Uh, his Wild West show was touring all over the continent and even in Europe. You know, with this sort of um, closing of the frontier, people in places like Cheyenne saw this kind of cowboy fever sweeping the nation, especially to points eastward. And they said, well, everyone is taking the train out here to see how we live and ask questions about past conflict with Native Americans, for example, and learn a little bit more about cowboy culture. Let's try and build some entertainment and make some money off of that. Out of that interest came events like Cheyenne Frontier Days, which grew into this huge Wild West 
culture and rodeo spectacle that at the time was perhaps the biggest or, or most well-attended sporting event in the country. So a rodeo was like a circus for the, the cowboy culture. I mean, they would go to big cities and they would set up a tent and they would show their tricks. Is that basically what it was? You sort of have two different things. One is the somewhat um, kitsch entertainment with the dramatization of a stagecoach holdup or the uh, trick ropers, for example. Then you also have real sporting contests, you know, bronco riding and steer roping and so on. Uh, so they sort of split the two. Usually the program would kind of weave between the, the sporting contests and the raw entertainment so that people could get this nice mixture. And of course, at night, there's moving pictures and dances and parties so that people can really enjoy a whole week at a celebration like this and not just zoom in for one quick sporting contest and then skip out of town. And this was a time when there was crass entertainment. I mean, you'd have midgets, you'd have deformed people, you'd have bearded women. Was there any of that in rodeos? Absolutely. And in a lot of it, Cody had this very complicated, if not contradictory, relationship with Native Americans. You know, he was involved with a lot of deadly battles with that population. And yet then he went on to hire a lot of these people to perform in his Wild West show, some of whom who had actually been in the real world conflicts. It's just such a bizarre... That's, that's garish. It, yeah. When it is you're garish. Killing them and then you're saying, okay, the war is over. We won. I'll give you some money if you come and wear your uh, headdress and, and dance as I play the drums. <laughs> exactly. So, and then was it just like, okay, so there's this rodeo thing going on in the United States. The Wild West is closing out. People are fascinated. Entrepreneurs like Buffalo Bill Cody and guys like that take it on the road and become famous, make a lot of money, even go to Europe. And then at the same time, you've got an honest-to-goodness rodeo cowboy culture in Hawaii that predates Buffalo Bill by generations. What was happening in Hawaii before we have this connection with Hawaiian cowboy culture with a continental American cowboy culture? In the final years of the 1700s, Hawaii receives this gift of a few Spanish longhorns, and the king puts a taboo on anyone killing these animals. And in short order, in about 25 or 30 years or so, Hawaii has essentially an ecological emergency because the cattle have reproduced with such success that there are now thousands of animals running roughshod all over the island, trampling gardens, goring people, making it impossible for the native population to venture up into the mountains or into the forest to forage for food. And something has to be done about this problem. And is this pervasive in the Hawaiian Islands or just on the, the Big Island? It started on the island of Hawaii. Uh -huh. And then soon after that, there are cattle also, you know, feral cattle all over oh, Maui, goodness. Oahu, so It's Molokai. an invasive species. It was an invasive species. And we have to keep in mind, these are not docile dairy cows right. um, that you might see in a, in a picture from Vermont. You know, these are wild animals with five, six-foot racks. Damn that, those howlies. Yeah, they will, they will charge people. Now, one of the things that is really striking about this, this culture is that I said those words, invasive species, to a Hawaiian guy I was spending some time with doing the reporting. Uh, he's a conservationist. And he said, you know, if you said invasive species about the king's cattle on Hawaii today, a lot of people would take offense at that huh. because it's true that they were introduced by outsiders. But it's also true that Hawaii sort of developed or evolved its own unique cowboy culture that people there today are incredibly proud of. And so it's not the same as like a okay. noxious weed. It's part of their identity, just like it, we, it we has celebrate Wild that. West culture and cowboys and so on. Ah, that's interesting. So it's a, a, something that is the roots, the cultural roots today of what Hawaii is. 
and those of us, of course, on the mainland, it's just not on our radar. Hawaii is sort of always going to be about white sandy beaches and surfboards and Mai Tais. But the reality is this very rich ranching culture all over the major islands, you know, in the year 1900, an estimated one third of all the acreage of the islands was allocated to rangeland, which gives you a sense of just how sweeping this whole ranching industry was. Okay, so we can imagine a rodeo in uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming, and guys rearing up on their horses and wearing chaps and lassoing and e-hawing and with their hats. Was there a, a rodeo spectacle in Hawaii before these two came together that was uniquely Hawaiian? There was. As Wild West fever was sweeping the globe, Hawaii was by no means left out of that kind of fever. And cowboys throughout the ages have always kind of on their downtime casually competed. You know, I bet I can throw a loop over that far fence post over there better than you can. And that is what sort of grew into rodeo contests. Hawaii was no different, and the the cowboys would sometimes gather together in some of the bigger towns or at the Parker Ranch for more formalized competition. It was always just a kind of sideshow for them because it was not nearly as hard as the actual work of wrangling cattle in this treacherous terrain. You're on flat ground in a very controlled environment. So it was sort of like, sure, well, I'll do that on a Saturday. And over time, at the very end of the 19th century, we get this handful of paniolo, which is the Hawaiian word for cowboy, who proved to be brilliant. And these are the trio who eventually make their way to Cheyenne, Wyoming, to compete in 1908. Ooh, and that's what I want to talk about in just a moment. This is Travel with Rick Steves. You know, we don't hear very often about Hawaiian cowboys, but they played a role in the Wild West. And now on Travel with Rick Steves, David Woolman, the co-author of Aloha Rodeo, Three Hawaiian Cowboys, the world's greatest rodeo and a hidden history of the American West, is telling us about that culture and three men that made the jump from the Big Island all the way to Wyoming to shake up the world of rodeo. Okay, so you got these three Hawaiian cowboys. Who were they, and how did they end up in Wyoming? And uh, that must have been big news to shake up the rodeo world. Uh, You got people who are not your quintessential cowboys, and they're actually pretty good at lassoing cows. So I'll rewind one year. So in 1907, there is a Hawaiian cowboy named Eben Lowe, actually one-handed roper who lost his hand in a, in a nearly fatal roping accident. He's touring North America and is in the stands at Cheyenne Frontier Days in August of 1907 watching the steer roping competition. And he thinks to himself, in short, uh, you know, my cousins could beat these guys. Before the event is even concluded, he invites some Wyoming cowboys to compete in a rodeo in Honolulu that he is organizing for December 1907. One of them is the five-time steer roping champion from Wyoming, a guy named Angus McPhee, who gets off the steamship in Honolulu after leaving a blizzard in Wyoming, looks around at this gorgeous place and this mild weather and never goes home. (laughs) And at the same time, Eben Lowe, our one-handed impresario cowboy superstar, is putting the pieces in place for his cousins to travel to Wyoming to compete in the 1908 Cheyenne Frontier Days. They are uh, Ikua Purdy, Archie Kaawa, and Jack Lowe, and Jack's uh, wife, Emily. They travel by steamship to San Francisco. They arrive just a couple of years after the Great Earthquake. They take a ferry across the bay and then ride the overland train over the Sierras through the Rockies to Cheyenne, this cowboy town on the edge of the front range of the Rockies. And they, they were looked at with this kind of a bemused smirk, I would say, by the local population. You know, on the one hand... 
I think Cheyenne and especially Frontier Days organizers were proud that people were traveling from so far away to join their rodeo. You know, what better affirmation that our rodeo is the greatest show in the world than people coming all the way from Polynesia? On the other hand, no one took them seriously as cowboys. It was, as you said earlier, kind of a circus act. They sort of looked like cowboys, but of course they have their chaps are a little different. They have flowers around their cowboy hats and their spurs are smaller so they don't get hooked in the jungle vegetation. Now, I can can imagine, David, the bemused smirk, but was there a little bit of Jackie Robinson racism where they were threatening the white culture or was this just kind of fun? Well, what's so interesting is you see a, a shift toward that in the newspaper coverage of the Hawaiians and their arrival. Of course, they're using language like the dark kanakas or the chocolate ropers. So there is outright bigotry up front, but there is no sense that these guys are a threat Mm -hmm. because there is just nobody better than a white Wyoming cowboy, period. So the tenor of, at least in the newspaper coverage, to start off Frontier Days is kind of welcoming this little freak show side act, but let's be serious. You know, only the best ropers are from Wyoming. Then after the Hawaiians perform on day one and demonstrate just how good they are with a lasso, there's this shift toward a kind of um, vengeful tone in the newspapers that is saying, you know, okay, Wyoming boys, it's time to send these clowns packing. At one point, they were kicked out of a saloon. You know, we know that from the historical record. And of course, we can uh, surmise that there was tremendous uh, discrimination and racism toward them. But as a nonfiction writer, that's a little different than what evidence can we specifically finger. We know they were kicked out of a saloon. Uh, We also know that they didn't get horses to practice with until right up before the competition. And that is a real, real handicap because in steer roping, the relationship, communication between rider and horse is so, so critical. And so that really put them at a disadvantage. And yet they proved to be so talented that they still won. Now, these guys, two of them, I understand, were actually uh, Hawaiian royalty. They were uh, relatives of uh, King Kamehameha. Yeah, and our our hero, Ikua Purdy, is a descendant of Kamehameha, and all three of them are cousins. They weren't just ruffians off the farm. They were cultured people. Did they have some sense that this was an important symbolic move for their people to, to let them know that, you know, we're part of the United States and we're also part of this culture? Well, one of the reasons that we found um, really this project worth doing at all is it was such a fascinating time both in Cheyenne's history and in, in Hawaii because we're just a little more than a decade after the forced annexation, uh, after the overthrow of the monarchy. Right. For Hawaiians at that time, is a real identity crisis. You know, who are we now under the rule of this uh, faraway overlord in Washington? For these three generally quiet cowboys to travel all the way to the sort of literal and figurative heartland of America and mop the floor with the local talent, it meant so much to the Hawaiian people. And it's not necessarily that these guys set out deliberately to represent their nation and to carry the pride of their people on their shoulders, but that is really exactly what happened. Yeah, but they had Uh, a plate at the table now or a place at the table. They were part of the whole game. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is David Wallman. He and Julian Smith have written Aloha Rodeo to tell us how three men from Hawaii redefined what it means to be an American cowboy. David has archival photos and film of the Hawaiian Paniolos on his Twitter feed, at David Woolman, spelled W-O-L-M-A-N. We have a link with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. David, when we think about this as travelers, what would you do in Hawaii to see uh, and experience this Hawaiian culture today, actually. There are so many opportunities to do this, honestly, um, on all of the major islands. You know, I think 
the, the word to write in the back of your travel journal or something is just upcountry, you know, which is the way people in Hawaii talk about getting some elevation, getting up off the beach. You can visit ranches on a number of the different islands and go for a horse packing trip. Uh, they do a lot of like picnic outing or a sunset excursion to delve into more of this history. It's a must to visit the Parker Ranch on the island of Hawaii. Uh, that's really the the epicenter of Paniolo culture. Is it a working uh, ranch ages. with an exhibition center, or is it just a tourist attraction now? It's still a working ranch. And can you actually pay money to attend a rodeo and be entertained with a Hawaiian-style rodeo? Absolutely. Where would you see that, and, and what would you recommend in that regard? I would recommend the July 4th rodeo at that the Parker Ranch hosts. There's also the same summer holiday opportunity at um, Makawao Rodeo on Maui. There's a wonderful place called the Paniolo Heritage Center right in Waimea on the Big Island, kind of, uh, which was really like Deadwood for Hawaiian cowboy culture at the time. There's rodeos throughout the year on the major islands, and there's, there's opportunities to actually get in the saddle as well and sort of mix it up with your surf lessons. And then you would see the rough and tumble actual physical uh, skill and talent like you would in Wyoming, I mean. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, the barrel racing, the bronco riding, the steer roping. There are fewer working ranches in the islands today, and yet there has been this real renaissance when it comes to um, paniolo culture and rodeo sport. And so there are a lot of Hawaiians now who are competing at the very highest level in rodeo competition, you know, traveling here to the mainland for the sort of top dollar contests. And so this isn't just a kind of token representation of how things once were in the islands. You know, these are live, competitive, rough, sometimes violent rodeos that you could go see today. Is there a sort of a, a musical tradition that goes along with the Hawaiian rodeos at all? There is. You know, after the three Paniolo who star in this episode in, in 1908, they win in Cheyenne, they come home to a hero's welcome. There are thousands of people there at the docks in Honolulu to greet them uh, as they stepped off the steamship. There was hula composed in their honor and poetry written in their honor. Uh, and there's, in fact, a hula song called Wyomina, which is Hawaiian for Wyoming that is, commemorates this exact episode. And so whenever you're in some of these cowboy towns on the islands today, like Waimea or Makoao on, on Maui, people will mention to you, oh yeah, do you know there's even a hula song called Wyomina? And <laughs> That's great. David Woman, it's so interesting to be just exposed to something that never even occurred to me, a Hawaiian rodeo. And the book is Aloha Rodeo. What would you like your readers from this book to take away with them, other than a general understanding of this cultural phenomenon? Is, is there any underwriting mission you had in teaching through this book? Uh, I love this question. <laughs> there, there are two things. I'm, one is I want people to be entertained. At its core, it is, or I like to think it is, a wonderful yarn. What happened and what the adventure that these three cowboys had traveling from Hawaii to Wyoming to compete and, and how the world reacted. The bigger goal was to really upset a lot of these tropes and the sort of binary thinking about the American West and who was a cowboy and what was the Western extent of this thing we call the American West. Uh, who can be a cowboy? Because so much of that is just wrong. You know, there were 20, perhaps 25 percent of cowboys at that time were African-American, for example. And we write about uh, women competing in bronco busting and here come the Hawaiians. And so to really remind people that cowboy culture is far more diverse and complex than, than a John Wayne movie ever would have suggested. It's a little more interesting than uh, we may have imagined back in the old black and white days, and, and you've contributed to that. David Woman, thank you so much, and best wishes with your book, Aloha Rodeo.
Thank you. It became something of a pop culture sensation in his hometown of Redondo Beach. Michael Scott Moore follows the spread of the ancient Hawaiian sport of surfing to California, Australia, and then some unlikely beaches around the world. We look at how surfing spread around the world next on Travel with Rick Steves. Once the world got to see the skills of Hawaii's surfing legends, it didn't take long for the sport of surfing to spread from its Polynesian roots to Southern California and eventually all around the planet. Movies and pop music contributed to making surfing a global hit. Michael Scott Moore grew up in Redondo Beach, the town that turned surfing into a global American export. He knew early on what it means to call surfing America's most liberating sport. Michael tracks down the stories of the characters who first introduced surfing to some of the most unlikely parts of the world in his book, Sweetness and Blood, how surfing spread from Hawaii and California to the rest of the world with some unexpected results. Michael, thanks for joining us on Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for having me. So how long has there been surfing? Oh, that's not clear because uh, there are no written records, but it probably goes back about a thousand years. The guess is about a thousand years based on the age of some songs in Hawaii. A thousand years. And it, and it would have been a, a Polynesian thing. or a... Absolutely Polynesian and absolutely Hawaiian. I've heard Captain Cook's sailors actually did some surfing when they were in Hawaii and, and enjoyed it. That's right. They were the first uh, Europeans to see surfing. Imagine the first Europeans to hit the waves, and they called it the most supreme pleasure. They must have really remembered it. Yeah, and they were struck by how much the people in Hawaii um, obviously loved to do it because they were sailors, and they were used to thinking of the surf zone as a treacherous place to stay. So the fact that these guys went out and went swimming in the surf was incredible Mm. to them. Now, your book covers literally the whole planet as far as surfing goes, and you grew up in Redondo Beach. Mm-hmm. Did you do a lot of traveling and a lot of surfing in exciting places as you put the experiences together to make this book? I did, yeah. No, I mean, I think of it as a travel book, right? mm-hmm. even more than a surf book. Um, certainly so? not a sports book. But it's the story of eight different countries and how surfing arrived there. Because it is a culture, isn't it? It's sort of a subculture. And it's people that really um, invigorates this book. Oh, it's absolutely culture, yeah, and, and a sort of universal culture. But I, I think it's interesting how surfing as a sport interacted with cultures that, you know, would normally have nothing to do with it. So we got Cuba, England, Morocco, Gaza, Japan. Is there any common threads here about the characters you met or how surfing weaves itself into the local cultures? Well, it's a story of how American culture actually spread around the world after World War II. So in two of the countries, surfing arrived by American force of arms. Hmm. Uh, In Japan and in Morocco, the two first people to surf in those countries were Marines. Was that just for recreation or were they spying or something like that? No, that was for recreation. They They would have been based there after World War II in each case. And in those years, late 40s, early 50s, the Marines who could surf because they came from California or wherever else mm. at, at home. And people watched it and they thought, oh, that looks cool. Let's try it. And it, it became a, a little um, industry right there. Exactly. They found boards to ride and, and the kids got excited. I can imagine. We think of surfing in uh, warm climates, but a lot of your destinations are not known for enjoyable swimming. I mean, you're talking about surfing in Cornwall in the southwest tip of England. Exactly. Yeah. Or in Germany, in northern Germany. Uh, In fact, the book had its origin there because I was living in Berlin and was surprised to learn that Germany had a surf scene. And I thought, well, I know who the supposed first surfer is in North America. It's the guy named George Freeth in Redondo Beach. I wonder who the first guy in Germany was. And that became the operative question for each country I went to. 
this is post-World War II, so in Germany it must have been a bleak time and maybe people found some relief just by getting out in the sea. Yeah, it was the 1950s when it started and surprisingly the guy who did it was a German lifeguard who had uh, very little exposure to American troops mm. and never saw an American surf. Uh, he just saw an engraving in an encyclopedia of some Hawaiians. Uh, and this is way in the, nor- in the North Sea. This is like almost Scandinavia, so he must have... Exactly, really close to Denmark. Did they have wetsuits back then in the 50s? No. They so didn't. they, they just the, had to be braving the cold. Yeah, they did it in the, in the summer. In the summer. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you talked about in uh, near Cornwall, the Severn River has sort of a an oddity, this, the Severn River board. How did that come into your, your experience? That's right. The Severn River gets a, a tidal surge every so often during the year. Uh, once the, the tidal surge comes, it happens twice a day for a couple of days. But this surge can create a wave upriver that uh, people like to ride on surfboards. And the funny part is if they fall off the wave, they have to get out of the river, climb in their cars, and drive upriver and catch it again. This one wave going down the river, it goes, what, several miles? Several miles, yeah. It's called the boar. It's a tidal boar. And the the men who ride it, the men and women who ride it, there are called boar chasers. So would that be a, an example of the culture you would have chased in researching and writing your book? Oh, absolutely. Lovely people, actually. They even invented the longest board ever you wrote about. 14 riders at one time on a surfboard? That's right. They <laughs> Amazing. They had a picture of that on the on the Severn River. Yeah. yeah, that's funny. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Michael Scott Moore. His book is Sweetness and Blood, about surfing as it spread all around the world. There's even stories from Castro's Cuba about surfing. What did Castro think about surfers? Well, I don't think Castro thought very much about them, but someone in his government allowed the American movie Point Break to be played on government TV. And because it's about bank robbers, I think they thought it was a, a very good anti-imperialist movie to show the people. And that inspired a lot of Cuban kids to learn to surf. Okay. And so make a political surf statement. Scene in, that's right. It was supposedly a political statement, but it's kind of a, a bad movie. And instead of turning Cubans into anti-imperialists, the surfers in Cuba, since surfers are rebels no matter what system they live in, became anti-communist. So this is interesting that you say surfers are rebels no matter what system they live in. There is a common thread. How would you characterize it, the surfer attitude or the surfer culture or the surfer cachet? Yeah, I think partly because surfing is originally Polynesian. It doesn't fit in with, with any culture it, it's melded with, including the American one. And so the people who took to it were outsiders in almost every case. Ah. Now, you wrote about how even Hemingway had something to do with helping bring surfing to France. That's right. The first people to surf in France were also Americans, but Hollywood types who noticed that there were some good waves near Biarritz where they were shooting uh, the film of a Hemingway novel, The Sun Also Rises. Well, it's such a dramatic thing to watch. I can imagine anytime anybody does that and locals are looking at it for their first time, they're just, they can hardly wait to interview the people when they come ashore and say, where do I get my surfboard and how can I do this? Yeah, exactly. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Michael Scott Moore. His book is Sweetness and Blood, all about the story of surfing around the world. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Scott's on the phone in Reno in Nevada. Hey, Scott. Hi, Rick. How are you doing today? Great. Are you, Hi, a, are you a surfer? Hi there. I am. Actually, my wife and I lived on, uh, on Oahu about 10 years ago for about a year and a half. Um, we got, obviously, deep into surfing there. We got to meet people like Greg Knoll. Um, some of the gatherings, and uh, bought a couple long boards. We moved back to the mainland about nine years ago, and we lived near Lake Tahoe. And Lake Tahoe, obviously, is famous for some great skiing. But during the, the summer months, um, we can get some huge wind swells, and North Shore gets some great surf. It 
beaches like Moon Dunes Beach, and it's maybe not as easy as some of the, the Waikiki beaches, but um, it's a cold but uh, refreshing experience. And it has its own unique culture here because a lot of the skiers um, actually are surfers during the summer. So you get a lot of the same kind of ski culture hmm. uh, melding over to the surf culture here. That's fascinating. See, I didn't know about that, and I used to go fishing on Lake Tahoe when I was a kid. I would imagine there is a, a correlation between the, the ski bum and the and the surfer sort of culture. Hey, Scott, yeah. isn't uh, Lake Tahoe really high altitude? It is. Yeah, actually, the lake level is about 6,200 feet in elevation. 6,200 um, so feet. That's more than a mile yeah. high. That must be... Can you think of any place in the world where you can surf more than a mile high? <laughs> Not offhand. There you go. Another dimension of surfing, surfing with your <laughs> thin altitude. The Great Lakes also have surfing, uh, also very small wind swells. I'm a little bit surprised that Lake Tahoe is big enough to build up a swell that's rideable. But, uh, you know, I'm hearing about people who ride waves everywhere. So I think that's fantastic. A rideable swell. My goodness. Thanks for your <laughs> call, Scott. Awesome. Thanks, Rick. Have a great day. You bet. And Ron is calling us from surfing headquarters in Honolulu, Hawaii. Ron, aloha. Uh, aloha, Rick. Thanks for calling. What's your take on surfing lately? Well, you know, growing up in Hawaii, in Waikiki, that was uh, the summer spot, out of school, going to surf. You know, everything was about surfing. And surfing just about any any kind of, uh, I guess you would call it device, be it a body surf or board or even a McDonald's tray. <laughs> when yep. when we had it. You can actually surf on something not designed to be a surfboard? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's uh, that's what Waikiki is known for that. They have a history of canoes and the longboards, bodyboards, pipo boards, which is uh, mm -hmm. like a wooden plank. Huh. And, uh, yeah, just about anything. So, um, Michael, you've sort of studied this like as a historian. How has mm -hmm. the gear evolved? Because, I mean, a thousand years ago, people were surfboarding on, on something Ron's talking about, I suppose. And then uh, I would imagine it gets its fin and it gets its balance and it gets its proper dimensions. But um, That's right. like skiing has evolved into snowboarding and so on. Have there been any real technical changes in the hardware in the last couple of decades that are radical? Well, big ones. I mean, the the first major changes happened in Southern California, and that's why you talk about it as the modern sport, as as an American pop cultural thing, because it changed in Southern California. The equipment changed, and the style of writing changed, and that's partly because you know nerds working, aerospace engineers, basically working on these problems, created the fin and and a certain shape of board. And that's something that didn't happen in in Australia in those years, the forties and fifties. But what did happen in Australia a bit later in the 80s, 70s and 80s was the shortboard revolution. Um, boards became a lot shorter under the hands of designers there. Those are the typical surfboards we think of now. More maneuverable? More maneuverable, exactly. Okay. Because I'm I'm a skier, and I, over my decades of skiing, man, if you got into a ski from the 1960s, a snow <laughs> ski, you'd think you're you're just very crude. And today it's made yeah. a huge difference. I, I bet there's a parallel evolution in a surfboard. Oh, a little bit. I think the old shapes of, of boards actually ride quite well. Huh. What's your take on that, Ron? Well, actually, you know what? We ride just about anything, and there's one thing that probably <laughs> nobody had ever thought of riding waves on or with, and this goes back to the 1700s. Mm -hmm. They used to use uh, pillowcases. <laughs> a pillowcase? I, can't, I cannot envision that. A pillowcase. Filled with what? Filled with air. Uh -huh. Whoa. So they would like actually get the pillowcase and 
take it out into the water and kind of, you know, I guess capture some air in it. Yeah. And then when the wave would come, they would just hop on the wave. They used to have uh, competitions in Waikiki Beach. There's yeah. actually some uh, a documentary of a historian of Waikiki Beach that uh, talks about it. That's, that's, that's great. Fantastic. The last thing on earth you would ever figure would be rideable on a wave. Yeah. I, oh, I, exactly. That's great. Thanks, Ron, for your call. Thanks, Ron. Aloha. Aloha. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Michael Scott Moore describes how the sport of surfing, dodged being wiped out by missionaries in Hawaii, caught a groundswell in his hometown in Southern California, and eventually found enthusiasts from around the world. He explores the stories of the global pioneers of surfing in his 2010 book called Sweetness and Blood, how surfing spread from Hawaii and California to the rest of the world with some unexpected results. His website is radiofreemike.net. Mike also tells us what it was like to be held captive for two and a half years by Somali pirates on Travel with Rick Steves program number 552. You can hear it again in our show archives from January 2019. It's at ricksteves.com slash radio. Hey, Michael, when I think of surfing, I think of, you know, fancy resorts, Honolulu or whatever, but mm-hmm. uh, you wrote about surfing in Palestine, in, in Gaza, mm-hmm. and you also wrote about surfing in Bali. Uh, tell us a little about surfing in those destinations. Well, in Gaza, it started with a, a small group of Palestinians who found a surfboard that had sort of migrated down there from Tel Aviv. And when someone saw in the newspaper that they were sharing one board, he made a point of bringing more surfboards there. And he turned out to be an old man who had pioneered surfing in Israel. And so that was like a the beginning of a peace project for him. And so now there are a bunch of surfers in, in Tel Aviv that try to get surf gear to Palestinians in, in Gaza. So this is like Jews and, and Muslims working together to enjoy the waves. Getting along, you know, beautiful because thing. they both like to surf. Exactly. Isn't that beautiful? When I was in the Holy Land, I learned that uh, Israelis and Palestinians each rooted for the same soccer team. The, <laughs> I think it was uh, one of the Spanish teams, but they didn't even know it. They're supposed to be enemies, and they were rooting for the same team. And I they bet can, that's true. And they can ride the same waves. More of that kind yeah. of stuff is, uh, I think, very constructive. What about Bali in Indonesia? Yeah, Bali is an interesting story because the capital there, Kuta, uh, started as a fishing village. It's not the capital, but it's the tourist capital. Mm-hmm. It started as just a fishing village, and it became a boom town once Australian surfers discovered it as a surf town. And by the early 2000s, it was this enormous, flashy sort of Western town that was a complete anomaly in um, Mm. Bali and in that part of Indonesia. And since the rest of Indonesia is Muslim, it became a target for these Muslim terrorists in 2002 that set off the bombs in Bali that killed so many people. That was a direct strike on surf culture. So Kuta brought the West into Bali. That's right. From a a terrorist point of view. From a terrorist point of view, exactly. Wow. Michael, it's so exciting to think of the uh, the global dimension of surfing and, and the common denominator of surfing culture. A lot of us would think of surfing as a kind of escapism or just dropping out, and it's, it's for beach bums, uh, but it can also be a more positive thing. And you write about that. How so? Well, it's a kind of freedom. And that's, that's one thing all these surf spots have in common, all these cultures that I, I visited. Everyone thinks of it as a kind of freedom out in the water, and that was most poignant with the Palestinians. It's a celebration of freedom. I love that. Absolutely a celebration of freedom. Michael Scott Moore, thanks so much for sharing an insight into surfing in your book, Sweetness and Blood. Last question. What happens when surfers, when they get too old to surf? (laughs) Well, the ones I've met don't stop surfing, but some of them, I have to admit, become surf judges. Okay, so old surfers never die. 
they just fade into judges. <laughs> into becoming judges. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, happy serving, Michael. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Rick. Some of our Travel with Rick Steves listeners have enjoyed island travels. A few have even sent us haiku poems they've written about it, like these. Sequoia Bua Iam from Boston, Massachusetts, got a window seat on her flight and shares what she saw in this high-altitude haiku. Economy class, peanuts dot my pull-down tray. Islands dot my view. Another Boston resident, Jacob Fish, enjoyed seeing the beautiful Galapagos Islands. Lava turned to stone. Where have Adam and Eve gone? An Eden untouched. And Stacy Bukaukis in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, shares her Hawaiian vacation with us in this island haiku. Snorkeling in the cove, cows meander on dirt path, drums, hips shake, luau. On the south coast of Portugal, the fish is fresh, and the chefs are passionate about their cooking. On a recent trip to Salema, that's my favorite little fishing village on the Algarve, I dropped by a shack behind Paolo's restaurant. Paolo was there, and while he didn't have time to stop pulling today's catch out of the icy cooler and scraping scales, he was happy to share the edible joys he had in store for diners tonight. Hey, Paolo. Hello. And uh, tell us about this fish. This is a black grouper or a wake. Yeah. And that's to be sold in my restaurant. This one we buy on a fish market in Sagres. In Sagres? Yes. Uh-huh. It's one of the best fishes we have. Yeah. And uh, this fella here. Look at this guy. This is a John Dory. John Dory. And this one is for six people. Six people. If you have another five, you can come Rick. <laughs> and... Uh, you go fishing sometimes yourself? Yeah, a lot of the times. And tomorrow you're going to get some... Pers- Barnacles, yes. Barnacles. How do you say that Just in Portuguese? Percebish. I love percebish. Some barnacles. All right, Paulo. That's Obrigado. Bon appetit. How do you say bon, bon... Bon appetit. Bon appetit. I'm Rick Steves, learning Portuguese and working up an appetite in the Algarve. Happy travels. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazmer Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Andrew Wakeling uploads the show to our website, Sheila Gerzoff handles affiliate promotions, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find more each week at ricksteves.com slash radio.